0: Good afternoon everybody and welcome to this BICOM webinar. I'm Samuel Nerding, the Research Associate at BICOM and I'm delighted to be moderating the webinar today with our distinguished guest, Ambassador Daniel Kurtzer. For those who might not be as familiar with our speaker as we are at BICOM, um, Ambassador Kurtzer is a professor of Middle Eastern Policy Studies at Princeton University. Prior to that, Ambassador Kurtzer had a 29 year career in the US Foreign Service including the top US representative to Israel and to Egypt and I think it's fair to say has been an instrumental part of formulating and executing US policy towards the Middle East, particularly in regards to the Middle East peace process. Um, Following the Madrid Peace Conference, Ambassador Kurtzer served as coordinator of the multilateral peace talks and um, was a US representative to the bilateral talks between Israel and Palestinians and between Israel and Syria i will just also like to add that Ambassador Kurtzer has also co-authored several books, including Negotiating Arab-Israeli Peace, American Leadership in the Middle East, and The, P- the Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace. Ambassador, thank you so much for giving the time today.
1: Uh, my pleasure, thank you.
0: So um, we'll start off with some questions by myself. If anybody from the audience has a question that they'd like to ask the ambassador, um, you can either kind of write it in the Q&A function box or raise your hand and I will um, let you join the conversation and you can ask the ambassador directly yourself. Uh, ambassador Kurtzer, perhaps we can start with a, a general kind of overview of your assessment on US foreign policy in the region. It's It's been about six months, I think, since President Biden has entered the White House. What do you think are the most notable changes in his administration's Middle Eastern foreign policy compared to the Trump administration?
1: I think there are several uh, points to uh, consider. Uh, Number one, uh, Washington is a quieter place these days than it was under the previous administration. Uh, We were greeted every day for four years with tweets and loud noises and shouting and anger and vituperation Uh, And what the Biden administration has done is to calm things down a great deal. And that's carried over in both our bilateral relations with countries in the Middle East, as well as multilaterally around the world. Uh, The administration has uh, tried its best to uh, restore uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan relations with Israel, uh, which were largely broken as a result of former Prime Minister Netanyahu's turn to the Republican Party. Uh, There are still differences of view with Israel on the situation in the occupied territories and policy vis-a-vis Iran, but the dialogue between us is now much healthier and much deeper. Uh, I think uh, the administration otherwise has tried to turn back some of the more egregious policy errors of the Trump administration. For example, the Trump uh, decision to essentially cut off the Palestinians from dialogue with the United States, cutting off aid to the Palestinians, uh, punishing uh, the UN relief and works agency that uh, helps Palestinian refugees. So slowly but surely the administration is uh, rebuilding what were the traditional, traditional foundations of American policy. Uh, and hopefully once those foundations Are strengthened, we can consider how to move forward.
0: I wonder if if I could get you to comment on something which the US Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin announced, I think it was in early June, that the administration would be reducing the number of US troops and anti-missile systems in the Middle East in what he described as a major realignment of the US military footprint as it focuses more on the challenges from Russia and, and China. How concerned are you of the withdrawal of U.S. troops and military hardware from the region and the vacuum that that might leave?
1: Well, I'm not sure I would describe it as a withdrawal. It certainly is a redeployment, Uh, but we still have a a significant uh, base in uh, Qatar. Uh, We have a significant naval facility in Bahrain, which is also responsible as part of the international effort to assure freedom of navigation through the Bab Mandib, mandeb the through the Red Sea into the Suez Canal and so forth. Uh, So the the United States is not withdrawing but uh, there are challenges elsewhere which um, are starting to uh, bear upon uh, U.S. military capabilities and the obvious one of course is in the South China Sea and the degree to which uh, Chinese naval Uh, and air power grows and begins to threaten uh, not only U.S. allies, such as Taiwan and Japan, but also uh, international trade as uh, uh, China uh, controls or tries to control these uh, man-made islands in the South China Sea. So it's it's a bit of a reorientation. I know that uh, there's an argument made that the U.S. has been pivoting away from the Middle East for Uh, more than a decade. Uh, I think that's partly true but uh, it's also partly overstated. The US still has significant interests in the region and uh, is not walking away.
0: Um, Great, thank you. I wonder if we can talk maybe about the pressing issues which have come up in the last couple of months and particularly for Israel in the region and the first one is obviously Gaza and the conflict that happened in May. to me, Biden seemed fairly sympathetic to Israel's security needs during the recent escalation, only kind of really pushing for a ceasefire after 10 days or so of fighting when Israel hadn't achieved mainly what it set out to do. Um, how do you read Biden's approach during that kind of latest May conflict in Gaza?
1: Well, there's no question that uh, once the uh, rockets and uh, missiles started flying out of Gaza, the administration Uh, did support uh, Israel's right of self-defense and gave Israel some time to degrade Hamas's military capabilities. But I think it's important also to note that the administration was certainly annoyed at uh, Israeli policy before Hamas started firing rockets, uh, particularly Israeli policy vis-a-vis Palestinian evictions in Sheikh Jarrah and the heavy-handed activities of the Israeli police on the Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount. Uh, And it's important to remember that the uh, conflict between Israel and Hamas actually had its origins in Jerusalem. Uh, It was not uh, uh, simply a a replica of the 2014 war. Uh, So the question really now is, and we haven't seen uh, an answer yet, is whether uh, the Israel Hamas periodic conflicts simply go back into the box until the next time, or whether the administration understanding that this issue started in Jerusalem and involves uh, continued occupation, dispossession of Palestinians from uh, their homes and so forth, whether the administration decides to do more. uh, And this will be very much related to the heavy domestic agenda that the Biden administration is pursuing Uh, How much bandwidth will the administration have to become much more actively involved in some of the uh, underlying factors in the Palestinian-Israeli dispute?
0: Um, Many kind of Middle Eastern analysts um, argue that Egypt utilised its position vis-a-vis Gaza to kind of try and regain favour with the US and to also improve its kind of its regional posture during during and after the war. Do you think Biden and his team see a solution to Gaza through Cairo? Do you think Cairo has any appetite to get more involved in terms of rehabilitation of, of Hamas in Gaza?
1: Well, I think the administration certainly uh, sees that the Egyptians have an important role to play, if, no, uh, if for no other reason than the fact that we, of course, do not talk directly to Hamas and uh, need to have a channel to Hamas when uh, problems erupt. Uh, Whether or not Egypt has the capability and the power to rein in Hamas or to begin uh, a transition from Hamas political uh, control of Gaza to the control of the Palestinian Authority remains to be seen. Uh, More generally, uh, the Biden administration remains a bit wary of uh, deepening the relationship with Egypt because of Uh, Egypt's human rights performance, which is a factor in the Biden administration's approach to the Middle East. So, the Gaza war, I think, reminded the United States that Egypt is a player and an important player. But uh, just yesterday, uh, a House subcommittee in the Congress uh, has put some conditions on American aid to Egypt related to human rights, which is also a reminder to the administration that it's not clear sailing ahead when it comes to our bilateral relationship uh, with the Egyptian government.
0: Fascinating, interesting. Um, maybe we can just kind of shift to Iran and again Iran is, is in the headlines at the moment and it's, it seems fairly clear that Biden wants a return to the JCPOA nuclear deal. Um, Israel doesn't want the US to concede any more ground than what Iran is already allowed to do under the JCPOA um, how do you see the Israeli government approaching the U.S. on the Iran deal? And how much weight do you think this new government in Israel will have to influence the Biden team?
1: Well, uh, the, the dialogue between uh, the Biden uh, administration and Israel uh, has intensified in the last five months. Uh, we've had high-level visits in both directions and uh, a steady stream of uh, intelligence and uh, political perspectives being passed back and forth. But I haven't seen any fundamental shift in positions. Uh, As you noted, the administration definitely wants to go back into the JCPOA, believing that uh, as it worked in 2015, it can work again to stop the Iranian program while we figure out what to do about uh, other malign Iranian activities. Whereas the Israelis believe that there are enough faults within the JCPOA that it doesn't pay to go back in. And that's a fundamental difference that uh, uh, on which there has not been uh, any bridge that's been built between the two sides. One of the things that I know Washington looks at is the degree to which the Israeli national security uh, community looks at the JCPOA. And as you know, uh, that community has been divided since uh, before 2015, with many both current and former officials believing that the JCPOA was good, if not perfect, and should therefore uh, be used at least to uh, to stop that program while other uh, mechanisms are found to curb Iranian activities. So the good news is the dialogue is better. Um, the uh, other news is that so far there's been no fundamental shift in positions, which suggests that uh, if the the talks in Vienna allow for the United States and Iran to return to compliance for compliance, which is kind of the formula that's being used, uh, I think the administration will go back in and uh, the Israeli government will not be happy at that point.
0: I wonder if I could ask you um, an if and an or question. Uh, if, if the U.S. is able to achieve its kind of compliance or compliance agreement, um, Biden has said that he wants to renegotiate a, a stronger, longer agreement with Iran. Israelis, I'm sure you, you've heard, are very sceptical that, that that is even possible. Um, what do you think are the chances of Iran agreeing to renegotiate a nuclear deal after they agree to go back into the, the original one?
1: The answer is I don't know. Um, If uh, we do get back into the agreement, uh, it also will have uh, restored the concert of uh, six countries, the permanent five members of the Security Council and Germany acting somewhat in unison vis-a-vis Iran. And that becomes a powerful diplomatic mechanism to uh, put pressure on Iran to move beyond the uh, current Uh, conditions within the JCPOA. Uh, Iran will gain some sanctions relief as a result of the compliance for compliance, but as uh, was evidenced in 2015, uh, it will not gain complete sanctions relief. There are a number of uh, sanctions elements that will continue even after the JCPOA comes back into force, and so there will remain a kind of coercive element within diplomacy for the P5 plus one to work with. Uh, The question is going to be uh, whether that compliance for compliance really works. Do the Iranians uh, act as they did in 2015 and shut down some of their facilities, export some of their enriched uranium and basically uh, shut the program down? And if they do, then the atmosphere will allow for a, a more, uh, systematic approach to diplomacy may take a little bit uh, uh, longer than we would hope, but uh, again, the time frame for working on this uh, would give us several years before the sunset clauses of the JCPOA kick in.
0: I wonder if I can flip the question and, and ask you if, if the U.S. don't agree with Iran on, on a return to JCPOA, do you think the Biden administration has the appetite to kind of maybe even return to maximum pressure campaign that the Trump administration used. What do you think the Biden team would likely do if they can't get to an agreement with Iran?
1: Well, I think sanctions will certainly continue. Uh, The Biden administration, my guess is, would want to multilateralize those sanctions as much as possible. Uh, And that might be doable if in fact, Iran is the party that presents Uh, the roadblock for uh, resuming the JCPOA. In other words, if the Vienna talks collapse as a result of Iranian intransigence, then just like in 2009, 2010, when the essentially bilateral U.S.-Iran sanctions uh, changed and uh, the UN Security Council uh, authorized multilateral sanctions, the administration might consider uh, doing that again. and our partners uh, may be more willing to uh, put some pressure on Iran. So a lot will depend on uh, the course of the negotiations in Vienna and uh, whether or not Iran becomes uh, the roadblock. Uh, I think the administration having said that will be hesitant to continue sanctions that are mostly punishing the Iranian people. Uh, And I think that's been a concern even among those who believe that sanctions have a role to play. Uh, the Iranian economy is uh, in very bad shape and uh, that so far has not impacted the willingness or ability of the regime to do its, uh, its policies and activities. And so there might have to be a recalibration of sanctions uh, at that point. But uh, again, it's gonna depend on how the uh, Vienna negotiations uh, end.
0: There's, there was some talk in Israel and so much in, in, the, in the UK and EU that the, the Iranian elections um, and this new president coming in, who's more of a hardliner, has created a new sense of urgency in the talks and, and the talks have to be maybe concluded before he comes in. Is that the same sense in, in the US or are they a little bit more relaxed and, you know, taking their time and, and it's not as much of an urgent factor as, as maybe what has been perceived in, in, in the UK and, and elsewhere?
1: Well, I know that uh, from January until the election, there was a sense of, uh, it would be good to finish the negotiations before the Iranian elections, just in case a hardliner was elected. Um, I haven't noticed any particular change since the election. It may be too soon to make that judgment uh, because we haven't really seen how this new president will play out his policies vis-a-vis the Supreme Leader vis-a-vis the negotiations in uh, Vienna. Uh, if he is true to form of his previous incarnations then the Iranian position might in fact harden in Vienna. Uh, but as I noted earlier, uh, you know it's not just a US Iran uh, uh, relationship here. Uh, Iran also has to deal with five other negotiating parties and doesn't wanna put itself in a position or should not want to put itself in a position of being the intractable party. So I think uh, it's too early to tell uh, what the impact is of the election, uh, but uh, I think it's, it's certainly worth watching given the, uh, the previous uh, policies and views of uh, the elected president.
0: Fascinating. I want to ask you also about the Middle East peace process, but before I do, perhaps we can talk about the Israeli-Egypt relationship, and and you have a unique position and experience being ambassador to to both countries. Um, Since peace agreements in 1979, ties between Israel and Egypt have kind of been stuck in limbo in in the security domain, and the relationship is often referred to as a cold peace. Um, Why do you think there has been this lack of growth in Egypt-Israeli ties politically, socially, culturally, economically? What, What do you put that down to?
1: You know, Egypt for, for many, many decades uh, has been kind of the cultural center of the Arab world uh, where books are published and films are filmed and uh, intellectuals gather. Uh, and uh, it, it was during that period that uh, Zionism and Israel became anathema to the intellectual class. Uh, so that even when uh, there was a, a a uh, very significant outpouring of support for Anwar Sadat back in uh, the 1970s, uh, intellectuals in Egypt and what you might call the Nasserists, those who uh, continued to believe in the Pan-Arab vision of Gamal Abdel Nasser uh, were never reconciled with the uh, treaty with Israel. Uh, and so uh, what Sadat did and what Mubarak continued And now we've seen it as well with Morsi and Sisi is to focus uh, a great deal of attention on the security elements of the treaty, which have been adhered to most meticulously uh, since 1979. There have been almost no questions, certainly no violations of the security provisions. And the two sides have actually found ways to work together uh, in particular in the last oh, decade or so with the insurgency that's taking place in the Sinai. Uh, But Egyptian governments have not, uh, for a variety of reasons have not invested in trying to change the perception of the intellectual class in Egypt. Uh, And that class uh, does still control a great deal of public discourse, what's written in the newspapers, on social media and on television. And so you still have a great deal of uh, Uh, anti Israel, uh, I call it propaganda, uh, being propagated in Egypt, um, which prevents the kind of uh, outpouring of warmth that we've seen in the UAE or Bahrain, places where uh, there wasn't this long history of intellectual opposition and certainly no history at all of direct confrontation with Israel. So it's been a very different uh, set of relationships between Egypt, Israel, and the so-called normalizing countries.
0: Uh, At the weekend, we saw President Sisi and Prime Minister Natali Bennett, I think, had their first phone conversation. Um, How much scope do you think there is for improved Israeli-Egyptian bilateral ties, and where do you think their focus should be?
1: Well, in the immediate period ahead, uh, I think they're going to be at least... uh, two or three places to look. Uh, One is going to be uh, even more intensified relations in the security domain. As I mentioned, the uh, uh, insurgency in Sinai and other security challenges that Egypt faces. Uh, If you look around Egypt's borders, they are surrounded by by challenges, whether spillover from Libya or uh, the implications of the Renaissance dam in Ethiopia and the Uh, uncertainty of the situation in the Horn of Africa, Sudan, as well as uh, Sinai. And so security relations, I think, will continue to grow. That means that intelligence sharing will also continue to grow. And I think Gaza can also become something of a uh, a catalyst for better relations. If uh, the two countries can figure out a way to uh, help reconstruction in Gaza that does not Enhance the position of Hamas. Uh, Sisi has taken a very hardline position against uh, providing or allowing assistance into Gaza that strengthens Hamas and that of course uh, Is consistent with Israel's uh, views, although Israel in some ways has been uh, somewhat more uh, willing to allow money and aid to flow into Gaza in order to keep things quiet. So those are three areas, I think, where there's a possibility of cooperation. Um, but I, I really don't see um, academic or uh, other kinds of cooperation growing. Maybe some economic projects. There were a couple over the years, a refinery in Alexandria, the gas pipeline, but uh, a textile factory. But I don't, see, I don't see that growing very much in the, in the period ahead, As much, certainly not as much as the security relationship.
0: Okay, great. Um, Maybe we can move on to the Middle East peace process, something which you've worked a lot on on your career in in the foreign foreign service. But but before we get into kind of the more kind of in-depth questions, I wonder if you can kind of maybe give your own experience of your role in the Middle East peace process, kind of what kind of key lessons would you pass on to a future US negotiator?
1: Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, very kindly, um, I've shared some of those lessons in the two books I've co-authored and one that I've edited. Uh, And uh, they're very serious lessons about American policy. I focused almost entirely on what we have done or failed to do. Uh, I would start uh, my answer by saying that one of the highlights of my own career was working with Secretary of State James Baker. Uh, But the fact is that nobody has replicated Baker's uh, abilities and uh, diplomatic prowess since then. So in a sense, uh, one of the key lessons is uh, can we have both a president and secretary of state who are uh, committed and dedicated and have the backbone and determination to uh, see through the inevitable crises that occur when uh, anybody, the United States or others Tries to act as a, a third party. Um, you know, back in, in the period before Madrid, we were dealing with leaders as difficult to work with as we have today Yitzhak Shamir in Israel and Hafez al Assad in Syria. We had to bring about Palestinian representation without the PLO at that time. Um, so the challenges were no less significant. And yet the determination of uh, the outside world, the United States and Russia as co-sponsors of the peace process at that time uh, made a difference and helped move the parties along. Now I recognize that we're in a very different environment both internationally and regionally but uh, that kind of determination, that kind of uh, willingness to invest and then stay the course has been uh, absent Uh, an unwillingness as well on the part of the United States to monitor uh, what the parties have agreed to uh, or have agreed not to do, and then to hold them accountable for their failure to do what they've promised to do. In other words, the follow-up on on negotiations, the unwillingness of the United States to build the, the final bridge between the positions of the parties whether it was uh, Olmert and Abbas back in 2008, or even uh, Obama's uh, 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 plan that he uh, showed to Abbas in 2014, Abbas never answered and the United States then dropped the situation and went in a different direction. So uh, again, looking in the mirror of American policy, there's a lot that we can learn from our the previous strength of our diplomacy and the subsequent uh, what I would call weakness of our diplomacy and uh, hopefully repair that if, if we have an interest in moving the peace process forward.
0: Fascinating. Um, I interviewed for Fathom Journal last year Khaled Engeldey um, at the Brookings Institution and he argued that the US hasn't always been in his own, an, an honest broker to the Middle east peace process He said that the US has often had a blind spot when it comes to the Palestinians and and their needs. Um, Is that something that you agree with as well?
1: Um, You know, I thought uh, Khaled's book was was, uh, quite good, but I think he overstated the case. Uh, We have never really been an honest broker in the sense of positioning ourselves halfway between the two parties. We have a deep alliance relationship with Israel that we do not have with the Palestinians. Now, back in the 1990s, uh, the Palestinians thought that was an advantage that uh, the United States could use its relationship with Israel to help Israel make difficult choices and to soften the concessions that would impact Israeli society. Uh, I think the United States has carried that a bit too far. We saw how far it went in the Trump administration when the United States essentially threw the Palestinians overboard and catered to anything that the Netanyahu government uh, wanted. Uh, So at a minimum, we would need to restore some semblance of balance between our relations with Israel and the Palestinians, but it's not a blind spot vis-a-vis the Palestinians. It's simply a different kind of relationship. And unless we can restore some, some balance Uh, between the two. um, We will be taking ourselves out of that game. Uh, We cannot sustain uh, diplomacy as a third party in this conflict if all we're doing is, in the words of one of my former colleagues, Aaron Miller, is acting as Israel's lawyer. Israel doesn't need us as a lawyer, and the Palestinians can deal directly with Israel without having us uh, carry Israeli uh, water. So uh, we have some work to do to restore some degree of balance, but I think the expectation that we're going to be, uh, you know, 50-50 is not realistic given our longstanding uh, special relationship with the state of Israel.
0: Interesting. Um, perhaps perhaps um, asking you about kind of the current times and, and the Biden administration, maybe I can just ask you a question about how you viewed the Trump administration's approach to the Middle East peace process? If you can kind of give like a, a scorecard in terms of how you think they acted. Obviously they they have been perceived as being very kind of pro-Israel anti-Palestinians. Um, their peace plan was, I think, unexpected in terms of its detail. Um, it'd be good to get your sense of, of how you think they approached it. And also the peace plan, what did you make of that?
1: Well, that's a softball question, as we <laughs> say in the United States. I, I tell my graduate students at Princeton that they have to earn something other than an A. Mm -hmm. My expectation is that they're going to do their work and the reading and the paper. Uh, The Trump administration earned an F, a failing grade, um, in large part because it threw overboard uh, everything that the United States had done before Trump came to office, uh, which included some of the good things we had done, as well as some of the things that were less successful. And by reorienting American policy as being 100% supportive of whatever Netanyahu wanted, and 100% opposed to whatever the Palestinians wanted, um, you know, we, we earned an F, a failing grade. Uh, and, you know, one can, can list both the uh, large elements, the, the closing of our consulate in Jerusalem that was kind of an embassy to the Palestinians, the closing of the PLO office in Washington, in both cases, cutting off dialogue with the Palestinian official community, cutting aid to the Palestinian Authority and to the uh, United Nations Relief and Works Agency, uh, not only moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, uh, but offering nothing to the Palestinians who aspire to having their capital in Jerusalem and telling them that Jerusalem was, quote unquote, off the table, as Trump did tell them, uh, recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which was a joke, because Israel actually never used the word sovereignty in its legislation relating to uh, the, the Golan Heights, uh, basically saying that settlements were not illegal. You, you go down this long list, and then you finally get to the so-called deal of the century, Uh, I don't know what century it was related to, that was so uh, misguided and so off balance that it's hard to know where to start. And the the place I would start is one of the last elements in, in that 181 page document, which basically said that after all the things that the document said Israel could do and the Palestinians could not do, it would be up to Israel to decide when the Palestinians could declare independence and create their own state. Uh, So everything about the Trump administration was just misguided and uh, so off balance that uh, it's taken some time for the Biden administration just to try to right the ship. Uh, It's not easy to do. Some of these issues are grounded in American legislation but uh, it tells you why uh, not only did the Trump administration not earn an A, but they basically will have to repeat the course if they want to qualify to graduate.
0: Um, I think it's <laughs> quite clear that the Israeli-Palestinian peace process or the conflict isn't on the top five of the Biden administration's foreign policy objectives maybe over the next kind of couple of years. I think Blinking and um, Secretary of State Blinking said in his meeting with Yael Lapid that now is not the time to, to restart peace, to, peace talks or maybe not even to talk about restarting peace talks. Um, do you see any opportunity of an opening for any kind of renegotiations or peace talks with this new Israeli government over the next kind of couple of years? Are you optimistic that there could be kind of space given that now and Benjamin Netanyahu isn't Prime Minister of Israel that a new government could kind of reinvigorate some some new thinking and some new kind of impetus?
1: Well if you ask me about a bottom line the answer is that nobody's ready today to re-enter peace negotiations Uh, but if you ask me does that mean that we shouldn't try then I would differ fundamentally with those who say it doesn't pay to try because we have other priorities and the parties are too far apart or leadership. Uh, And I think that's short-sighted. You've seen a proliferation these days of alternatives to the two state outcome. Uh, People have given up on the idea that um, it's achievable and therefore they don't even wanna try. Uh, You have ideas of a rights-based approach, you have ideas of, so-called shrinking the conflict. Uh, There's some ideas of starting with the confederation. Uh, My graduate students at Princeton actually examined alternatives to the two-state solution and they tried to prove that there were alternatives and there aren't alternatives. The Rand Corporation tried the same thing. The Institute for National Security Studies in Israel tried the same thing. The reality is that these two peoples who aspire to control the same land as part of their national aspirations are gonna have to find a way to uh, share that land probably through separation. Uh, Later, they may decide to confederate or federate or find ways to uh, integrate more. But uh, in the first instance, uh, they really will need to, in my view, uh, establish independent states. Israel has one, the Palestinians need one. Uh, And that means that today, Uh, there's a long list of things that uh, can be done to help set up a situation in which the parties can resume negotiations. Number one is for the United States to begin, uh, if not uh, articulating publicly, but articulating diplomatically in our contacts with the parties, uh, updated uh, what might be called parameters or terms of reference. You remember back in the year 2000, uh, President Bill Clinton came out with a set of parameters, which were pretty good, and Israelis and Palestinians used them to negotiate. Well, we now know more about the positions of the two sides, and the United States can use an updated set of parameters in our diplomatic contacts uh, with the parties. We know that uh, a group in France, Exxon Provence, has been studying for quite some time how to divorce the two economies without... Uh, Hurting the two economies. In other words, giving the Palestinians much more control over their economic decision making and practice. And we can start to implement some of those ideas again to do carefully without hurting the two economies. We can certainly expect Israel to modify its occupation practices with regard to settlement activity, uh, freedom of movement, and so forth. And we can expect the Palestinians to do better in terms of governance. Uh, Back in 2009, 2011, the former prime minister, Salam Fayyad, in a sense, got the Palestinian authority ready for statehood. uh, And they have gone backwards, as we've seen in the last few years. So there's a lot of work to do, uh, short of expecting negotiations, but work that will lead to a situation where we can then decide whether it makes sense to actually enter negotiations.
0: Fascinating, thank you. Do do you think the Biden administration will also play a role in trying to help governance in the Palestinian Authority? Obviously we've seen recently that they canceled their elections. Do you think the Biden administration will also look to the Palestinians and say, there's some stuff that you can also do to to help improve the situation on the ground?
1: Oh, for sure. Um, I was a bit disappointed that the administration remained silent in the uh, run-up to what was supposed to be the elections when the administration should have made clear that we supported the right of Palestinians in Jerusalem to vote as they had done in previous elections, and that we supported a process in which candidates, uh, no matter what their political views, could run for office if they eschewed violence and agreed to adhere to the uh, uh, laws and policies of the uh, Palestinian administration. Uh, So I think as we approach this again, the administration should take a more vocal position. Uh, With regard to uh, Palestinian performance, actually the EU has been far better than the United States in helping the Palestinians reform and and build uh, credible institutions. And I think working hand in hand, the United States and the EU uh, should resume that uh, with some uh, vigor.
0: I have a question here, and it's it's um, do you see any possibility of the idea of a united contiguous Palestine in an expanded Gaza? So I suppose do you see there's any in any possibility for Gaza and the West Bank to ever be be reunited?
1: Well, 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 there certainly is a possibility of their reuniting politically. you know the problem that uh, we have always faced is the territorial or geographical separation. And you remember back in the Oslo Accords, there was this idea of a safe passage between the West Bank and Gaza. I think the narrowest point is 25 or 28 miles, which is not an insurmountable geographical barrier if the two sides wanna figure out how to build a, uh, whether it's an underground road and railway system or elevated road and railway system it's doable. The Rand Corporation, in fact, had a proposal some years ago called the ARC, which uh, showed the value uh, that could be accrued to uh, the Palestinians of creating those kinds of links, even if territorially they are separated. Uh, so the willingness of the two sides has to be there. Uh, and it's not impossible, but it's, it certainly is a challenge. Politically, you know, that's doable. Um, Hard to imagine today, given uh, Hamas's entrenchment in Gaza, but uh, it's it's not an impossible uh, dream uh, to think about how do you reinstitute Palestinian Authority rule in Gaza uh, in a manner that's meaningful.
0: I, I want to ask you about a, an article you wrote, and I think it was in Newsweek, and it was about the the Human Rights Watch report on. Um, I think that the apartheid about how Israel is, is now an apartheid state. You actually write a very interesting article in Newsweek. And I wonder if you can just um, tell our audience some of the arguments you made about why that, that report is actually harmful for peace and for peace talks.
1: Well, the basic argument, that was actually a co-authored article with uh, Aaron Miller, uh, a longtime uh, friend and colleague in, when I was working in government and since. Uh, and the argument we made basically was that we have used the Human Rights Watch expertise and evaluations of the situation on the ground for many, many years since uh, HRW came into being. And I remember it playing uh, it's analyses playing an important role as we formulated the annual human rights reports that we had to submit to the Congress. Uh, the problem that we had was human rights moving from uh, investigator Uh, to uh, judge and jury. And by making a decision or coming out with the determination that Israeli practices that they had documented quite seriously, that Israeli practices constituted apartheid and crimes against humanity uh, would make it impossible for those of us who were using the Human Rights Watch evidence to make uh, our own judgments, whether from outside government or inside government. Uh, using Human Rights Watch evidence now uh, attaches the analysis to its conclusions. Uh, Now, Human Rights Watch has the right to do that. They have now made a decision, as did an Israeli human rights organization's B'Tselem, that Israeli activities constitute uh, apartheid or equivalent to the definition of apartheid. But as far as uh, Aaron Miller and I were concerned, uh, this... uh, kind of, it was a place where we got off the train, where uh, we would no longer feel comfortable uh, using the Human Rights Watch evidence, which traditionally has been quite uh, serious and quite credible, uh, because they had already reached a judgment and had declared uh, a final judgment uh, with which we simply uh, could not agree.
0: Um, Another kind of I tactic, but another approach that the 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 PLO have been doing is just internationalizing the conflict and go into um, international organizations to try and pressurize Israel into, into renegotiating peace talks. Um, what's your assessment of that kind of that tactic? And, and do you think the Biden administration will, will heed to it or if they'll, they'll prefer for, for bilateral direct talks?
1: Well, I've argued um, in my writing since leaving government, since I think the first article I wrote on this was in 2010, that um, under the right circumstances, the United States should recognize the state of Palestine uh, and see it as the fulfillment of uh, UN General Assembly Resolution 181, which was the partition resolution of 1947. You remember that resolution called for the creation of a Jewish state and an Arab state. And if you use creative language, uh, one could argue that uh, the state of Palestine is the fulfillment of that resolution, just as the state of Israel is the fulfillment of that resolution. And you actually kill a couple of birds with that one stone. Number one, you've recognized a Palestinian political uh, uh, need or requirement, but you've also dealt with the question that Israel has raised of whether or not it can gain recognition as a Jewish state. Uh, UN resolution 181 uses the phrase the Jewish state and therefore you could uh, check that box as it were as well. Um, What I don't see however, is recognition of the state of Palestine as a substitute for the negotiations that would be required uh, between the two states, the state of Israel, which is long established but has no recognized international boundaries and the state of Palestine, which would then be recognized but has no recognized international boundaries. And so you would have these two entities that in a sense are negotiating on a little bit more synchronous level but uh, have a lot to talk about uh, boundaries and security and economics and all the rest. Uh, so I- I've always argued that we, the United States should uh, offer that recognition. But at the same time, the Palestinians, uh, that all that does is, is check a box. It doesn't really accomplish all that much. They still have all the work to do afterwards to negotiate the terms of peace with their neighbor, the state of Israel.
0: It's a question which many governments in, in the EU and, and I know here in the UK have also have, have questioned themselves and have debated whether they should recognize the state of Palestine. Um, I have another question here, and it's concerning Lebanon, which I know isn't your, your main area of focus, but um, the question is, how do you see the, the situation in Lebanon being resolved within a massive financial crisis at the moment? Um, you know, do, do you think Israelis are concerned about kind of what openings that could give for Iran and, and Hezbollah on the border?
1: Yeah, I actually covered Lebanon when I was in the State Department, and uh, Lebanese people are wonderful, and uh, it's a place that many Americans and Europeans really love, but I was quite happy to give up the, uh, the portfolio because um, it may be a problem that doesn't have uh, a solution. Uh, you look at Lebanon now with the degree to which Hezbollah has uh, concretized its uh, presence, the degree to which the, the, uh, the Lebanese currency has tanked, uh, what was it 18,000 or more to the dollar just the other day um, and there seems to be no social contract anymore. Uh, even if that social contract was frayed at the edges for you know 40 years, it uh, kind of held the place together and I, I'm not sure it exists anymore. Uh, and so the answer is, I don't know the answer and I'm not sure that uh, those who are much better versed in Lebanon than I uh, know the answer. Uh, how do you, how do you reconstruct a an edifice that was pretty poorly constructed from the outset back in the 1930s the uh, creating the kind of sectarian divide that has always beset this country's politics and then adding on top of it the destabilization first of the PLO in the 1970s and then of Hezbollah in the 1980s until today uh, it may be just too much for the structure to bear. Mm. And, uh, you know, it may Lebanon may just become a ward on the international system for many, many years to come.
0: One things which um, we haven't spoken much about, but you referred to earlier was obviously the Abraham Accords. Um, last week, um, bicom hosted Michael Herzog and, and he thought that the momentum of the Abraham Accords has waned a little over the last year. Um, what is your sense of, of how likely more countries might seem kind of want to normalize or come to normalize peace with Israel? And to what extent do you think the U.S. is maybe a key factor in making new agreements happen?
1: Well, there's no question that the U.S. was maybe the key factor in the Abraham Accords. We gave the United Arab Emirates sophisticated aircraft and drones we gave Sudan uh, immunity from terrorist prosecution. We gave Morocco recognition of sovereignty over Western Sahara. Uh, I think without those, um, there might not have been the, the so called Abraham Accords. Um, you know, if the administration decides it wants to give away uh, additional elements of policy to other countries, maybe that would be an incentive. But one of the great drawbacks since those accords were put into place is the fact that they didn't relate almost at all to the Palestinian issue. And almost any of the countries that, are, that may be considering formalizing relations with Israel have made clear that they will not ignore the Palestinian issue. And if they wanted to ignore it, the Israel-Hamas war recently reminded them that it's not gonna go away. So, um, you know, Mike Herzog may be right that uh, momentum has waned, but I'm not sure there ever was a, a serious possibility of momentum without some degree of uh, Arab and Israeli Arab state and Israeli uh, movement on the Palestinian issue that would incentivize uh, other countries Uh, to join, uh, to join the accords. Uh, And I don't see that happening right now, frankly.
0: Okay. Um, I have another question here, and it's, how concerned should we we be about Iran's genocidal rhetoric against Israel? Um, But perhaps you can maybe talk about kind of when your time in in the State Department, how aware were you of Iran's kind of rhetoric in Israel? And how much did it play a factor in in your kind of decision making vis-a-vis Israel and, and the Middle East?
1: Well, we were we were quite aware of um, the threats that Iran posed, uh, not just in rhetoric, but also in uh, in uh, the degree to which it was preparing uh, its missile technology and its nuclear program. And if we had not been aware of it, you know, I would refer you to a speech that Yitzhak Rabin gave before he became prime minister, back in I think it was 1991 in which he argued that Israel needed to make peace with its immediate neighbors because of the existential threat that Iran posed over the horizon. So this issue has been with us now for more than 30 years. Uh, We might've had a bit of a a vacation from it during the 1980s during the Iran Iraq war. But as soon as that war ended, uh, you look at both Iraqi rhetoric and Iranian rhetoric, and uh, they resumed their quite hostile uh, behaviors. Uh, You know, we tend to use the word existential threat rather loosely. And I'm not sure that I would use that uh, in relationship to Iran vis a vis anybody else. Uh, The Israelis certainly see it as an existential threat. uh, If uh, Iran can develop a nuclear weapons capability and marry it to a delivery system. Uh, I think it was even Rafsanjani, a so-called moderate, who, what, seven, eight, ten years ago, said, you know, one successful launch of a missile at Tel Aviv of a nuclear warhead missile Tel Aviv, essentially wipes out, you know, a large part of the population and the economic infrastructure of the state. Uh, so that has to be a concern. But um, uh, Iran is also vulnerable. And uh, I I don't know any country or any country's leaders who may be willing to sacrifice their own country's existence to threaten the existence of another country. So it's not a simple matter of uh, uh, existentialism, as opposed to, I guess we used to call it mutual and assured destruction. Uh, And right now, the Israelis have a Uh, leg up on Iran with with respect to destructive capabilities, both in terms of their own uh, undeclared nuclear program, their own missile capabilities, their naval uh, capabilities. Uh, And now uh, with the relationship with two Gulf countries, uh, it changes the uh, refueling and other uh, issues that uh, may have inhibited the question of an Israeli military activity against Iran. Uh, so yeah it's a very serious problem and I think that's why it has occupied a top agenda item for successive uh, American administrations and others um, and that's why I would still argue it's important to get back to the JCPOA. Stop that program in its tracks and get to work on some of the other problems.
0: Right and um, perhaps we can end on the the U.S.-Israeli relationship going forward, and obviously President Biden and President Rivlin just had their meeting yesterday, and there's talks of Prime Minister Bennett coming to to the U.S. in in a few weeks, maybe in July. How important do you think that meeting is for Israel to kind of heal heal its relationship with with the Democratic Party um, going forward?
1: Well, if, if there are no other items on the agenda, that is the most important issue, I think, for both the Democrats and for the state of Israel. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, basically tore apart the idea of of bipartisanship in the U.S.-Israeli relationship, and not just recently. This goes back to before Trump, when uh, he came out in support of Mitt Romney's candidacy and had all of these fights with uh, Barack Obama, uh, went behind Obama's back in 2015 to uh, argue for the Congress to stop the negotiations on the JCPOA. In other words, Netanyahu was voting Republican and uh, it created a, a huge fissure within the Democratic Party within our political system. So if nothing else, if they do nothing else then repair that uh, tear in uh, the bipartisan nature of the relationship it will be a successful visit. Clearly, Bennett's going to have other things on his mind. Uh, Iran, probably number one, Uh, the continuation of US uh, security assistance and security umbrella. Uh, Biden will have things on his mind, Iran, of course, as well as Israeli occupation practices and settlements. So the, the substantive agenda will be serious, but the political agenda is really going to dominate And if they come out of that meeting um, kind of with the kind of smile that says, you know, we're back in the bipartisan nature of our relationship, then in a sense, it's been a successful visit.